In the book of Ruth, chapter 3, begin here. I want to begin by looking at the events that are leading up to Ruth's appearance at the threshing floor that night. That's where we left off last week. Uh, Ruth has gone and uh, she has had this interaction with Boaz. And um, what was driving that? What was behind that is it's the end of the barley and the wheat harvest in Israel. And Naomi has seen over the weeks or months uh, of these harvests that were back to back, she's seen that they have had a, a temporary solution to the problem that they had as they arrived back in Bethlehem from Moab, needing provision, needing food, needing sustenance. And she's seeing that, the the temporary solution, come to an end. She's seeking a permanent solution for uh, for Ruth and, and for herself because these families stuck together. So uh, as she's seeking rest and security, we, we talked last week about the word rest, it means a whole lot more than kicking back. <laughs> it means to the Jewish mind, especially in these days, rest was security. It was uh, finding a place where you are settled in your life. And and that's what they're looking at. And so Naomi comes up with a plan. She'd been watching, evidently been watching Boaz, watching Ruth and Boaz. And She's seen Boaz as being so gracious and so kind and so generous with Ruth, having told Ruth to stay in his own fields to where he could protect her and he could bless her and had the guys leaving extra sheaves of grain and all that. And and so Naomi comes up with a plan. She says, look, Boaz is going to be at the threshing floor tonight. At the end of harvest, they would thresh out the grain and get it stored so that they'd have it to go through the winter ahead. And so Boaz would be out working that night, uh, and she knew his pattern. She knew his routine. And she says, I want you to go down there to the threshing floor. Don't make yourself known to him right away, but watch where he lies down. And when he's all finished for the day, I want you to go and uncover uh, his, uh, his feet and lie down there and he'll tell you what to do. And, and of course, Ruth says, I, everything you tell me, I will do. We got to think that most likely Ruth wasn't aware of the nuances of their culture and their customs and the laws of Moses and all of that. And so she's eager to take Naomi's advice to heart. Uh, and so she does. She goes down and she does all of that. She gets the right guy. It's, it's dark. And he, Naomi had said, make sure you see where he's going to lie down. And she does. And Boaz wakes up at midnight and he's startled. Uh, and she says, take me under your wing. And we looked at the significance of that statement. It was the same thing that Naomi had encouraged both women to do as she had told them to go back to Moab, go back to your home country so that someone would give you, so that your future husband would give you rest. Again, looking for rest. So, Boaz's response is significant. It's in verse 10. I don't have that. uh, This isn't part of the verses that we're going to cover this morning, but I do want to tag it. He says, blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter. Uh, Evidently, Ruth was a younger woman. He says, for you've shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning in that you didn't go after young men, whether poor or rich. And so uh, Boaz in his own mind is saying, you know, you didn't go after the guys that would be more attractive to you. 
younger guys, more attractive, uh, whether poor or rich. He says, you have selected me. And he also knows that he's a near kinsman and all of that. But I think what's significant in that is that Ruth's attraction to Boaz was more about respect uh, than it was about an image or his appearance. And I think tragically, many make that mistake today. I call it the curse of beauty. (laughs) This is my own deal. Uh, And it's that people who base their relationships purely on attraction. I was reading in Proverbs this morning uh, that beauty fades. But matters of the heart are, are that which are enduring. And, and yes, of course, there, there needs to be attraction in place, especially in looking for a spouse. And yet, if that's at the expense of character, it's a big mistake. You look at what happened with Israel, with King Saul. They said, we don't want, God, we don't want you to rule over us. We want to have a king like all the nations around us. We want to be like them, which was a big mistake in their thinking to begin with. And what they got was this king that was, a, he was an attractive guy. It says he was head and shoulders above the rest, the most handsome guy in Israel. And here he was, he was like this Hollywood guy. Well, we know what Hollywood produces, but at any rate, he's like this guy that he's, he's got the physical appearance down. And it started well, but it turned out to be a horrible king because they based it on appearance. They based it on, uh, not on character because Saul's character was found to be severely lacking, especially as he moved through uh, his time as king. So anyway, at the threshing floor, Boaz, he talks to Ruth. He tells her how blessed he is more at the, the, at more now than at the first when he had been blessed by seeing how she cared for Naomi. Uh, and he says, look, there's a problem. He, he lets her know, and we'll look at it here. Uh, stay the night. If he said, yeah, I, I can redeem you, but there's a problem. There's a nearer kinsman. There's a guy that is close, more closely related to Naomi, to Elimelech, actually Naomi's belated husband, than I am. And so I'm going to pick it up in verse 13. I'm going to read through to the end of the chapter in chapter 3, and then we'll come back and tag some bases there before we get into chapter 4. So looking at this, Boaz tells Ruth, he says, stay the night. In the morning, it'll be that if this nearer kinsman will perform the duty of a close relative for you, good, let him do it. But if he doesn't want to perform that duty for you, then I will perform that duty for you as the Lord lives. He makes her a promise. He says, look, one way or the other, Ruth, you're getting married. (laughs) You're going to be taken care of. So he says, lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning and she arose before one could recognize another. It's still dark. Uh, then he said, don't let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the shawl that's on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley, laid it on her, and she went into the city. Uh, notice that ephahs is in italics, so we'll get to that in a few minutes. Uh, so when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, these six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, don't go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Verse 18, then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out, for the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. So uh, as we're looking at this, this conversation that uh, 
And Boaz is having with Ruth in the dark. Uh, when he, in verse 13, he says, stay the night. In the morning, uh, it'll be that if this guy, the nearer kinsman, will take care of you, then good, but let's do that. But if not, I will take care of the duties of the Goel, the near kinsman, for you. And he tells her to lie down until morning. And so as I'm looking at this, I have to think, I wonder how much sleep either one of them got. Because Boaz knows that Ruth is a catch. He knows that she is a woman. She has a reputation around town already. And it's a good reputation as a virtuous woman. He knows that she is a woman that he has a desire for. And and he also knows that there's somebody else there. But think about it. They're laying there in the dark. And here he is. He's an older guy, uh, successful in business. But and we're not told much about his background. But you got to think that if he's willing to embrace her as a wife, that there's a good chance it was quiet at home and that he didn't have any heirs. But now, looking at what's unfolding before him, he is a blessed man. And so I imagine him staring off into the dark, thinking about the next day when he has to go see this other kinsman, figuring out in his mind how he wants to present all of this, which is a remarkable presentation. We'll get to that. And so there he is. And Ruth, the same way, laying there at the feet of this man who she has just proposed marriage to, and, and he has told her one way or the other, you're going to be taken care of. She'd be excited, but she'd also be probably some apprehension there and, and perhaps even a little fearful. She doesn't know who this other guy is. She just knows that Boaz is a fine man. And uh, she's widowed. She's childless. She doesn't have anyone except for her mother-in-law. And uh, she's got an uncertain future. Now, now she can have hope. She doesn't know how, how that's going to shape up. But again, I wonder how much sleep these two got. Uh, I, I would venture to think that they didn't get much. Now, something else about this, I mentioned it last week, that Boaz was a man of honor and integrity. Honor, he was honorable in protecting Ruth from harm. I believe that's why he invited her to stay. But he also has integrity. He's protecting the interest of the nearer kinsman as, he, as we go. I was looking at this and I was thinking about my father who was born, and I'm not that old, but he was an old guy when I was born and he was born 115 years ago in 1905. And he had, he was from Texas and he had old school values. And, and he used to call me Johnny because he, he had this kind of rough voice, gravelly voice. And he said, Johnny, you need to be honorable. And he would tell me about these things. And, and I praise God because even as a young boy, my father was instilling values of honor and integrity. And, and I, yeah, I've had my issues with all of that over time. But the point is, is that those are things that stuck with me. Something I see about Boaz here is he is being what we like to call, at least in New Testament terms, he is being others-centered. And a primary attribute of a, of a person of God is that they're not just looking out for their own deal. Uh, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we read this. He, the Apostle Paul, writing from jail, he's, he's, well, actually he's under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard, when he writes Philippians, he says, let nothing 
be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each of you esteem others as better than himself. Boaz's honor was showing here. He is esteeming Ruth as more important than himself. He's protecting her. In verse 4 of Philippians, he says, let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. That's where his integrity comes in. He's protecting the rights of the the nearer kinsman, the, the first Goel. Verse 14, so she lay at his feet until morning and she arose before one could recognize another. And she said, don't let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So as I mentioned, it's still dark. And when she rises, she, it says that she arose before one could recognize another. And then Boaz starts to talk. We don't know if he was talking to her or if he was talking to his men who might have been nearby. Uh, it's, it's a little vague there. Uh, he may have been, when he said, don't let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor, he may have been telling them and, and essentially arranging an escort for her back into the city because it's still night and it's still dangerous. I tend to lean towards that, but take your pick. He may have been talking to her. The point is, he says, keep this quiet. Now, it's not because there was anything improper going on. Actually, it was because there wasn't anything improper going on. And he didn't want people, I'll tell you what, the gossip mill can get going on things like this. He's committed to her welfare physically. And he's also committed to the reputation she has in their culture. So had he been seen with Ruth at his feet, it could also have damaged his reputation. Uh, there's a lot going on here, and it just was best. Uh, we're told in the New Testament, be wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove, to use wisdom. Uh, he's not concealing a matter because of its impropriety. He's concealing a matter because he doesn't want people coming to their own conclusions. And I think that's just wisdom. He's putting Ruth's safety above his own reputation in this because his reputation could have been damaged. You know, I think about this, gang, and I think about gossip. It's a destroyer of relationships. It's a destroyer of churches. Uh, If you've been around me much, you know that I have very strong feelings and very strong opinion about gossip. Uh, and it's not based on my opinion. It's based on what God's word has to say. We're told in Proverbs that there's, uh, it's one of the things that God hates. And that's a strong word. I hate it too. Uh, there have been times over the years where someone will start to gossip to me. And, you know, with most things, I will just give people grace. You know, if you have an opinion about this or you, you're talking about that, I, even if I don't agree, I'm just going to be, I, I want to be gracious. God has wide margins with us, and we need to have wide margins with one another. But when somebody starts going into and and putting down another, when they start, well, we need to pray for so-and-so because blah, 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 whatever it is, if it's gossip, I will address it right then. And I found great value in that because it shuts it down, not just that time, but it sends a strong message. I will say that's gossip. I don't want to hear it. And I've said this more than once. That's gossip. I don't want to hear it. Knock it off. <laughs> and, and I want to love on those people, but I also want them to know there's a clear line that God draws 
when it comes to making presumptions about others. Now, good gossip, we're down for that all day long. You want to tell me something great about somebody else? That's awesome. So he doesn't want the word to travel, complicate his dealings. Also, I think he's thinking too about this nearer kinsman because Ruth had come to him first. So as we're looking at this, we see that he's just using for several reasons here. He's using wisdom and saying, you know, let's keep this on the down low and don't let it be known that you stayed the night here, even though we know, and the text tells us, she stayed the night at his feet. There was nothing going on. Verse 15, and he said, bring the shawl that's on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. And then she went into the city. Now, Ruth's shawl, we have some friends that are missionaries in Malawi, which is in uh, Eastern Africa. And the name of their ministry is Ruth's shawl. And it's because of this. It's because of the provision that God brings, uh, especially to people who are downtrodden, people who have slipped through the cracks. And Ruth was in that category, low in their society, a foreign woman and all. And, and Boaz is just pouring it on. We'll look next week at how this is a shadow of how God pours it on with us through Jesus. Yet here, she has this shawl. And now a shawl in that culture, it, was, it would be a large piece of cloth. Well, it was a woven cloth wrap. And, and it, it was sort of multi-purpose. You, the women would put it around their heads if it was cold. They would wrap it as a shawl uh, when it was warmer, but they wanted to have a covering. If they slept, if Ruth was sleeping out here, she would use it as a blanket. It's also used as a tote. I mean, it was sort of a multi-purpose deal. So he says, bring the shawl. And it says that he measures six ephahs of barley. Now, if you remember when we looked at ephahs earlier in this book, when he first meets Ruth and he gives her an ephah about barley, that's about 25 or 30 pounds. <laughs> that would mean that he laid 150 to 180 pounds of grain on her. <laughs> Not a chance. But I went back into the Hebrew on this and what it literally says is that he, that he, the Hebrew says that he gave her six of barley. It doesn't say six ephahs. That's why ephahs is in italics. When you see something in italics, when you're reading your Bible, especially like in the Old Testament, it means it was added, hopefully to clarify for the, from the translators. And this is, it's just something that was added and it doesn't add up as far as the weight goes. However, there's a, a unit of measure called a sia. S-E-A-H. And what it was, was a third of an ephah. So yes, he's giving her ephahs of barley, but these six measures, they were six measures or six scoops of barley would add up to about two ephahs. So that's about 60 pounds. Uh, Considerable. If you look at this as the six of barley being the siah, not an ephah. It's, It's way too much weight. My point in that is she's still, <laughs> have you ever been to, I remember when we had a dog going to Costco and getting those 50 pound bags of dog food. And, and I'm a big guy and hefting that thing up onto my shoulders was work. This is more than that. So we have to assume Ruth is a strong woman and women were strong. They, they did a lot of the heavy lifting in this culture. And it says that Boaz had to heft it up onto her, probably onto her head. That's how they carried large loads uh, in doing so. So the point is she's got a ton of barley. She's not literally a ton, but she's got a bunch. She's got way more than she had counted on. 
But Boaz wants to send a message to Naomi. You got to realize too, that when we're talking about this, for these people, that's currency. This is like him writing her a big check. Uh, basically saying, look, this is security for you. This is the rest. This is symbolic. It's representative of the rest that you're looking for. And I will give you that rest or I will see to it that the nearer kinsman gives it to you, but you don't have to worry. And this is to help you to understand that I'm sealing the deal. So in verse 16, he says, so when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. So, Again, looking at the way this translates, is that you? Yeah, it was probably still dark. Maybe that was what she was saying. But literally in Hebrew, these words, is that you? It translates, how did you fare? How did it go? What happened? Or in, in our society, in our vernacular, we might look at Ruth coming in the door and say, well, tell me about it. And, and so this is, she's, it's an inquiry. When she says, is that you? Uh, I think it's fascinating how that translates out. In verse 17, she said, these six ephahs are measures or scoops of barley. He gave to me for he said to me, don't go empty handed to your mother-in-law. So now Ruth shares more detail of the conversation she had with Boaz than she had previously when she had the conversation. We don't read that there, but she speaks of it here because remember she said, it says that she had this conversation, this whole thing. And she's sharing with Naomi all that he had said. Uh, the purpose in this is it's intended to reveal to Naomi Boaz's attitude towards both of these women. He is saying yes to Ruth, but he's also in this, he's saying yes to Naomi. And she doesn't waste any time excitedly, Ruth doesn't waste any time excitedly sharing all that had happened. Something that's interesting here, I, I want to just uh, tag this for a minute. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, we looked at that earlier in this book where we talked about the nation of Moab, how they had refused to give food and water to Israel. That's part of why they were on the least favored nation list with the Jews. Now, when we look at a type, and we'll look at more types next week, uh, literally a type is an impression or a shadow of a person or a thing in the Old Testament that points to something in the new, that points to a future fulfillment of that shadow, that impression. What we see here uh, is that Ruth, it doesn't point to a New Testament fulfillment in this particular thing, but it does point to an impression or a shadow that not only are there types in the Bible, there's what's called an anti-type, and that's an impression or a shadow of the opposite of a person or a thing, something that's going on. So Ruth here is the anti-type from Moab. She's a Moabite woman. But remember, she gave all that up. She embraced the God of Israel. She embraced Naomi's people, the people of God. Unlike her Moabite forebears who refused to bring food to Israel, Ruth has become an inexhaustible source of bread for this Jewish woman, this Israeli woman named Naomi, her mother-in-law. Every time she leaves the city, she returns with a load of grain, and that's no exception here, coming back from the threshing floor with Boaz. And now her shawl can barely contain the amount of grain. The other thing I want to look at with this, and, and we'll look at it more next week, is what a picture of grace this is. 
As I read this, I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter 3 in verses 19 through 21. We're breaking into the Apostle Paul's prayer. And he prays that we would know the love of Christ, which, which passes knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And we see here that Boaz, in a, a literal sense, is filling them with the fullness. The Apostle Paul says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And he, he, he ends his prayer with amen. That's what's going on with both of these widows in this story. Through Boaz's exceeding grace and generosity, this Gentile woman fills the empty Naomi beyond anything that she could have asked or thought. And I think it's just a remarkable picture as this unfolds. Something else about verse 17. This is where we see the last actual words of Ruth in this book, in this story. But there's still a lot going on, as we'll see. Verse 18, it says, Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. Again, yeah, you gotta, it, we're not told why Naomi tells Ruth to sit still. Was she pacing? Was she frenetically cleaning everything? Was she anxious? Would you be? <laughs> I think so. You know, she's just been told. She suddenly has come to the knowledge that she's getting married. Probably today. The only problem is she doesn't know to whom. <laughs> she's, she doesn't have any idea which way this is going to go. So Naomi has to ask her to sit still, to settle down, wait. In verse 17, Ruth had told Naomi all that Boaz had done for her. So Naomi, she's filling in the blanks here. She knew that what Boaz's intentions were, and she knew him to be more than man of words. She knew him to be a man of actions, and she knows that he's going to handle this, and she knows that he wants to get this squared away right now. There's no time to wait. She knew that this was a matter that was of great importance to Boaz. She also believes he sees the urgency of their situation. Chapter 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative, the Goel, uh, the kinsman redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friends, sit down here. And he came aside and he sat down. Now Boaz wastes no time in taking the initiative here. Uh, after the previous night's events at the threshing floor. He's there probably early in the morning. Uh, and because this guy, he, Boaz would know that if this guy was still working his crops or whatever, that he'd be going out of the city to do it. We know that these people went out of the city. So he's there at the gate of the city. These are walled cities. They were like little fortresses for protection. And they were usually fortified with two gates. They had an outer gate and an inner gate. And there would be a courtyard in between. And the reason for that is that if somebody came in with bad intentions, they'd be able to pick them off <laughs> with archers and such before they got to the inner part of the city. So this was also a place where commerce was done as people from outside came to buy and sell. The main part, when he talks about going to the gate, is this is where all of the public affairs were discussed and legal matters were transacted. So this would be like a combination of a city council chamber and a courtroom. It's where you did 
business. It's where you entered into contracts. It's where you sealed the deal. So he goes to the city gate. He knows this guy's patterns. He waits for him and all of that. So he sees this guy. He says, come aside, friend. This is fascinating. When he says, come aside, friend, the Hebrew is Poloni Almoni. Literally, what it means is Mr. So-and-so. <laughs> uh, the, the translators are being kind here because what it's the same, it, we would use the term John Doe, come aside, John Doe. It's a vague term. And the writer here, Samuel, or whoever wrote this book, was intentional in this because, and we don't know exactly what their motivation was. Perhaps it was because his name is unimportant to the greater story being told here. But there's also a good chance that it was partly because he wasn't worthy of honor after refusing his duty as the primary Goel, as the primary kinsman redeemer. We don't know. Nevertheless, Boaz calls for a meeting with this unnamed man. Chapter 4, verse 2, And he took ten men of the elders of the city said, and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. So he's got this group of men sitting around him. This would be an effective way to com- conduct business, impartial business in the city, at the city gate. This would be like he convenes a jury. He has uh, they're, they're honorable, respected men that would sit, the elders of the city, that's what that means, is they were people that had honor. They were people that were straight shooters. And he surrounded with them, himself with them, so that as he went through this matter, that they would both be witnesses and they would have the the option to be able to speak into it if necessary. So that's what he's doing here. He's putting this thing together. Verse 3, and then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who's come back from the country of Moab, sold a piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. Now, we don't know if that was a literal brother. Probably not, but it was a, a member of the family. So what's really interesting about this, and something I think is fascinating, is the way that Boaz presents this. He doesn't go straight to the leveret law of marriage, where he talks about Ruth. He talks about Remember, we looked, he talks about the Goel's, ability, the Goel's ability to redeem land. We talked last week about four responsibilities of the Goel. The first was to buy a brother out of slavery. That doesn't apply here. The second was an avenger of blood in case somebody had died through less than honorable means. That's not the case here. The third thing we looked at out of Leviticus 25 was that the Goel was responsible to redeem family land that had been sold or forfeited. So he starts with that. Now, I want you to understand something about why he's saying this about the land that Naomi sold. Uh, after the land had been apportioned to Israel, after they came into the promised land under Joshua, God intended that they, the, the land that these people were given, that each of the tribes was given, that it stay within the tribes and the family groups or the clans. So the land would never permanently be sold. Now in Leviticus 25, Verses 8 through 17, I'll just, uh, I'll just explain it. I'm not going to go through it. It's not time. Every 50 years, the land was to revert. It was to be returned to the original owners during the year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee was essentially an economic reset. Uh, if you had transacted land, it had to go back. If there were debts, they were canceled. It was, it was, a, it was an amazing thing that God set up. Speaking with my son one time, uh, years back about the economy, 
And I, I think it was during the 2008 downturn and all of that. And I said, son, have you ever read about the, the laws governing the year of Jubilee? Because if we did that, there wouldn't be any inflation. We wouldn't see prices mounting, 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 going up, up, up. We wouldn't see that. There wouldn't, it would solve so many economic problems. But the problem with it is, is that men's hearts are greedy. Israel never observed. God ordained the year of Jubilee. Uh, every seven years and then every seventh seven years would be the year of Jubilee, the 50th year. Israel never did it. Not once. There's not any place that's recorded that they observed the year of Jubilee. However, 50 years is a long time. So what God did within that is he made a provision for land that was sold by the widow that it might be redeemed back to the family by the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. That's why he has this particular responsibility. This is where Boaz starts his negotiation with this guy, his talk with this guy, and it's brilliant. Verse 4, he says, I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. With all these witnesses, if you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I'm next after you. So the, the, the nearer kinsman immediately, I mean, he's, who wouldn't turn down an offer of property, right? He says, I'll redeem it. Yeah, sure. Uh, you got to think that Ruth and Naomi, it, they're sitting here and they're watching this. I wonder if their hearts sank when this guy said, yeah, I'll take it. Because Ruth had developed a relationship with Boaz. But Boaz, again, he's doing the honorable thing. He's acting with integrity. He's, he's offering this. Nothing he is doing or saying is misrepresenting this, but he's presenting it in a way, you'll see in a minute, that gets this guy scratching his head. <laughs> But the ladies there, I mean, when he said, I'll redeem it, I would imagine that they were there, that they just looked at each other like, where do we go with this? We're not told how Naomi sold her family's land, yet we got to understand, you know her circumstances. We know that she, she left during the famine. They went to Moab. Her husband died. Her sons died. We've got to believe that she did indeed sell the property that Boaz is referencing here. Nothing in the story about it, but it makes sense that she did. And this looks like a sweet deal. The prospect of more land for the near kinsman. Uh, he'd buy her land back. He'd buy this land back from Naomi, keep it in the family, have the ability to farm it himself. Sweet deal. Except, verse 5, <laughs> then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it. From Ruth, the Moabitess, the Moabitess, <clears throat> the wife of the dead, and perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Now Boaz goes to the lever at law, to the, the law of the brother of, and we don't know if it was a literal brother or if they were applying this law to the nearest relative. But he says, look, uh, in Deuteronomy 25, it says that this guy's responsible to carry on the family name by marrying the childless wife of a deceased relative. We looked at that again last week. So he's telling this guy that if he wants to buy the property, the woman, Ruth, is part of the deal. He says the wife of the dead, ahem, is what he's saying. You also must marry Ruth and raise up children to carry on the family name. 
So what he does is he presents the property first, gets this guy's attention. He goes, yeah, that's awesome, man. I want to, yeah, I could definitely use that property. And then he says, oh, by the way, you got to take the girl too. And it, it, it immediately gets this guy thinking. Uh, it's like, that's just, the price just went up. Uh, one of the things that we're doing in our church is uh, uh, Jennifer has been working on a newsletter that we're getting ready to put out. And we were communicating the other day about the cost of printing and all of that. And one of the things I mentioned is that a lot of times these guys will put a low price on the printing and then they want this gigantic fortune for shipping. And if you were going to buy something, especially buying things online, I found that you want to get the price of the goods and the shipping combined because it's the only way you can get a really good idea about it. Well, Boaz separates those two here. He's saying, well, yeah, the, you know, the land is a great deal. But then he introduces the woman and gets this guy, like I said, shake, is scratching his head thinking, it doesn't look as good. It doesn't look as sweet. Verse six, as the close relative, as, and the close relative said, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Interesting. The guy immediately backs off the way that Boaz had presented this. We don't know why his inheritance would be ruined or even if it would be ruined. We don't know if he's making excuses. It's possible that he had grown sons and his inheritance may have already been distributed. I mean, if you look in Luke chapter 15, where Jesus tells the story of the prodigal, where he comes to his father, he says, give me my portion that is due me and the father does. We know that that was the case. Very often these people distributed their estates before they died. Perhaps that had been the case. Perhaps he was just saying, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. He starts backpedaling. But Boaz, the point is, Boaz knew exactly what he was doing. What if he, I, I get to wonder, it's like, what if he had said the opposite? What if he had said something like, I'm here to inform you that Naomi's heir, her daughter-in-law Ruth, is available for you to perform the rite of the Goel and to marry. And you know her reputation as a fine, virtuous woman. She's a young woman, she's a trash, she's, and he could have really just put it out there first, put Ruth out there. And said, essentially, but wait, there's more. Yeah, sounds like a Ronco commercial, but, but saying, but let me, on top of that, on top of getting this woman and taking Ruth as your wife, you'll also gain control of all of Elimelech's property. He could have sold it to him, but he didn't. He presents it in such a way that the guy initially says yes, and then he backs off and he says, no, I can't do it. You do the deal. So, Again, it doesn't tell us, but I would imagine that Ruth and Naomi were there at the gate of the city. Uh, and they had initially, you know, kind of their hearts dropped when they heard the guy say, yeah, I'll take it. And then how, as this whole thing turned around right in front of them, that their hearts must have soared. They must have just been excited at this point. Verse 7, now it was a custom in former times in Israel uh, concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything, that one man took off his sandal and gave it to another. And this was a confirmation in Israel. Frankly, that seems kind of gross. <laughs> Sorry. I was picturing people with old shoes. Uh, it's like, I don't want to touch them. But that's what they did. That's how they sealed the deal. And uh, in Deuteronomy 25, uh we're told it, it describes a ceremony conducted when a kinsman declined his responsibility. This guy has just declined. 
In Deuteronomy 25, we're told that the one declining removed a sandal and the woman he had declined to honor would walk up to him and spit in his face. That doesn't happen here because there's no lack of honor involved. Boaz is getting what he wants. The nearer kinsman is getting what he wants. Ruth and Naomi are elated at getting what they want. So therefore, in verse 8, it says, the, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. The nearer kinsman is saying, the land is yours to redeem because you're willing to redeem the posterity of Elimelech by taking Ruth as your wife, something I'm not willing to do. And so everything turns around at this point, And Boaz is now the one who has the ability to redeem. He transfers his rights to redeem to Boaz. Verse 9, And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that is Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. So what Boaz does here, now this this is the ceremony. This is uh, the legal sealing of the deal, though. He's making a public proclamation, accepting responsibility to redeem Elimelech's property and his posterity and the future of his lineage in marrying Ruth. He's legally, this this is the ceremony. This is where he takes it on. And he binds himself to Ruth. But there's more. There's a spiritual union as well as a civil union going on here. Verse 10 tells us, Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, uh, I have acquired as my wife. He's very specific there. To perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. Boaz doesn't know it at this point, but what he is doing is he's saying we're going to continue the family line. Through the family line, someone would come in just a very short time named King David. And from his, from the same family line, we would see Messiah spring forth from the genealogy that's involved here, from what Boaz is taking on as an honorable man. Now, remember back in chapter one, Ruth appeared to be giving up on her best chance at the rest and the security that we've talked about through going back and remarrying in her own country. She said, no, I I don't want to do that. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She tells Naomi. And, And Naomi said, go back, find another husband. Instead, she left her native land of Moab and gave her heart and her life to the God of Israel. What we see throughout this story is that Ruth put God first in her life, even when it was hard, even when it didn't make sense. We're told, uh, guys, uh, in First Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, the natural man receives not the things of God. They're foolishness to him. And yet the spiritual man sees all things. He appraises all things. Ruth was blessed. She was blessed with favor among the people as a Moabite woman. That's significant when Boaz says, you know what? Your reputation has gone out throughout the whole region. You're known as a woman of, of, of virtue. So she's blessed with favor among the people. 
now she's blessed with a relationship that's greater than she could have ever dreamt. She's blessed with purpose beyond anything she could have imagined. We see also in this story that Boaz put God first consistently. As we've seen, when he first shows up, he's given a salutation to his workers. The Lord be with you and the Lord bless you. We see that that's not just idle talk. It's not just he had the spiritual jargon down. These are expressions of his heart and his heart towards God. He's putting God first in his daily affairs as well as in the story with Ruth and in his interactions with Ruth. We see him putting God first and piling grace upon Ruth and Naomi. And now we see him putting God first and stepping up to redeem. He had no obligation here in this story at all. He was not the guy, but he saw the condition that the women were in. He saw their circumstances. He saw the need and he stepped up because of his relationship with God. He's blessed with a wife of tremendous godly character and virtue. As we wrap up, I read this and I wonder, what about the person who loves God and who's going through severe trials in their life? What about the, because I don't want this to look like uh, if then, I, I call it if then. You see all over the Old Testament, it's if you do this, then I will do that. And, and, and that's how it is in the law. The law of Moses is if you obey, then I'll let you live. Uh, do it and live. But we're in the new covenant. It's done. The work is done. Therefore, love. So I don't want this to look like, well, if you do these things, then you get this blessed life. Because sometimes people do things, godly things, godly people doing godly things, and their circumstances don't change. Or their circumstances are hard. Is that a sign that God's somehow against them? I think not. Not at all. A good example from this story is Naomi. Was God against her in allowing horrible circumstances to befall her? No. He used those things to draw her back, to to give her meaning and purpose, to give her rest and security in her life. We'll see next week that she goes on to become the nursemaid to Ruth and Boaz's son. And the women around her call her a mother. This woman who said, I'm beyond any hope of bearing any more children. Something that a a wise friend told me many years ago. I was going through some really tough stuff. And he said, John, you got to remember, it won't always be like this. Keep your eyes on the Lord, not on your circumstances, because again, we can get overwhelmed. We we put our eyes onto our circumstances and, and they can just knock us off our pins, man. We hit hard times. We go through stuff, don't we? If that's you, if you're going through difficult times, I want to encourage you, I want to exhort you, keep your eyes on the Lord. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are passing through this world. We are in, but not of the world. That's all of those things are things that the Bible tells us. And as we walk through this life, especially these days, as we look out, I look out and there has been a very definite shift in the spiritual realm. And I'm not going to be one of those guys that tries to tell you and unpack that and tell you all the details of how it looks because it's too early to know. But I will tell you that there's been a shift. God judges nations. Uh, and, And folks, you've got to believe that Our nation has been ripe for judgment for a long time. Is there a shift and God is now going to begin to pour out judgment on our nation? 
Could be. It's likely even. And yet the Bible tells us that rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. So what is our attitude about these things? I believe we're headed for hard times. I believe the church is headed for hard times. I was teasing with my son uh, a week or so ago, and I said, well, so much for job security for the old man. And he laughed, and you know, I, and you know, we make light of it, and I'm not worried about it at the end of the day, because I know I'm right where God wants me. So are you, whether the circumstances are tough or whether they're blessed. I look at the Apostle Paul writing four letters because he's chained to a Roman guard. Being chained, he had to write. He couldn't go out and visit the churches that he was accustomed to visiting when he made his missionary journeys. What's the benefit in that? We get to read those letters. They became part of our Bible. They became part of the New Testament. So you could be short-sighted and look at it and say, it's just hard and I don't like it and I'm really bummed about it. I'm mad at God about it. Or you can do what Jesus was constantly doing. You remember when we were studying the Gospel of John where he was constantly trying to get the people's get their vision and elevate it to where they would see that what he was doing was impactful and had meaning, maybe not on their physical well-being, but on their eternal well-being. That's the God we serve. Are you going through hard times? I'm not saying that you just, hey, buck it up. Because there is a place where we come alongside, especially one another, with compassion, mercy, The Bible says we weep with those who weep and we mourn with those who mourn, that we don't have a cavalier attitude about these things. And there's also a place where we understand that if I'm going through tough stuff, if our nation is going through tough stuff, if the people around me are going through tough stuff, that doesn't mean that God is somehow against them. There are times where sin brings about consequences. Don't get me wrong. But very often, It's because God is working in our lives and he's always working ahead of us. We don't know. That's where trust comes in. That's where faith comes in, an act of faith, which results in, I very often I interchange the word faith with the word trust. It's one thing to say, I believe in God. It's another thing to say, I trust God. I trust him with my life. I trust him with this church, folks. This is not my church. I have a boss and I trust him with you. I pray for you. I love you. And yet I know as we've been going through things, it's not been easy for a lot of us. And yet we serve a good and a kind and a compassionate and a merciful and a gracious God. He's the God that's, that lives above our circumstances and he beckons us to join him there because you can find peace. You can find rest. You can find purpose in living above the circumstances that you're in. It's all fruit of his spirit working in our lives. If you don't know Jesus this morning, perhaps the things that I've been sharing have struck a nerve. Perhaps there's this thing inside that's going, yeah, that makes sense. It's not because I'm all that. It's because God uses this to reach out, to touch people's hearts, to touch people's lives. If you're struggling with making sense out of what you see going on around us, perhaps you're even advocating for all of the craziness. And yet there's a place in your soul that's vacant and you see it. And you want to move from death to life. You want to move from seeing earthly purpose to having a heavenly purpose in your life. You want to move from judgment to grace.
It all comes down to Jesus. It all comes down to the cross. On the cross of Christ, he paid for our sins. He died in your place and mine. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that he became sin, that we could become the righteousness of God in him. By coming to a place, we're told the just shall live by faith, that of saying, Lord, I believe it. It may not make all the sense that it needs to it in me, and I might not have all the answers. I don't know a lot about this book, this divinely inspired book that we call the Bible, but I do know this. I'm trusting for the first time that you have answers, that you can take my life, my dented, broken life, and make it new. If that's you this morning, pray a simple prayer. Ask God to forgive you for your sins, to cleanse you. Tell him that you're putting your trust in the power of the cross. And he'll give you in return the power of the resurrection. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he resurrected with power. And he gives that power to those who believe. That's how we can trust him. That's how we can go through crazy times and say, you know what? It is what it is. I don't like it. But I know who I love. I know who I serve. And it's not Joe Biden or anybody else. I serve the King of Kings. I'm a member of his kingdom. And I'm passing through this place. There is great comfort, great relief in that as we look at these things. Let's pray. Father, for each of us, we're in different places with, the, with you. And, and some online here may just be in a place of never having looked at things this way, of never having embraced you. I pray specifically for them, uh, whether it's live or they're getting this as a recording somehow. I pray, Father, that you would touch their hearts, that you would touch their lives, that you'd give them the the insight, the wisdom, the ability to simply say yes to Jesus and no to this world. If that's what you're doing, pray that prayer. I guarantee you on the basis of God's word that he will do it. Lord, for the rest of us, if our hearts have been wandering or if we've been stressed or we're going through tough circumstances, We pray that through this story, this beautiful story of Ruth, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would speak into our lives, comfort, grace, assurance. Lord, we we pray that you would do the work, that you would be, as the lover of our souls, would just invade us with your spirit. We thank you this morning for the work that you're doing, the work that you've done, and that which you're yet to do. We yield ourselves afresh to you and to the working, the power of your spirit in us. We thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.